Today on the external solemnity of Feast of Corpus Christi, it's certainly a timely occasion to revisit the topic of sacrilegious communion. Remember that in order to worthily receive communion, we must be in the state of grace. As the Council of Trent teaches, quote, certainly the more the holiness and the divinity of this heavenly sacrament is understood by a Christian, the more diligently ought he to take heed, lest he approach to receive it without great reverence and holiness, especially when we read in the Apostle Paul those words full of terror, he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh judgment to himself, not discerning the body of the Lord. That's 1 Corinthians 11.29. We just heard that in today's epistle. No unconscious of mortal sin, however contrite he may seem to himself, should approach the Holy Eucharist without a previous sacramental confession. Close quote. No unconscious of a mortal sin, however contrite he may seem to himself, should approach the Holy Eucharist without a previous sacramental confession. It's quite possible that some people here may have been told otherwise, and I hate to say that, but perhaps maybe even by a priest. It's a salvation issue, so let's not have any doubts. The Council of Trent, quote, and that so great a sacrament they may not be unworthily received, and therefore unto death in condemnation, this Holy Council ordains and declares that sacramental confession must necessarily be made beforehand by those whose conscience is burdened by mortal sin, however contrite they may consider themselves. If anyone, moreover, teaches the contrary, or preaches, or obstinately asserts, or even publicly by disputation, shall presume to defend the contrary, by that fact itself he is excommunicated." Close quote, the Council of Trent. A sacrilegious communion occurs when someone unworthily receives our Lord, either by not keeping the fast or by not being in the state of grace when he goes to communion. The Catechism of the Council of Trent warns, quote, as of all the sacred mysteries, there is none comparable to the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist. So likewise, for no crime, is there a heavier punishment to be feared from God than for the unholy or irreligious use by the faithful of that which contains the very author and source of holiness. Close quote. Our Lord told St. Bridget that there does not exist on earth a penalty great enough to punish this sin sufficiently. The teaching of that great bishop and doctor of the church, St. Cyril of Alexandria, sums it up. Quote, they who make a sacrilegious communion, receive Satan and Jesus Christ into their hearts. Satan, that they may let him rule, and Jesus Christ, they may offer him in sacrifice as a victim to Satan. They who make a sacrilegious communion receive Satan and Jesus Christ into their hearts. Satan, that they may let him rule, And Jesus Christ, they may offer him as a sacrifice, as a victim to Satan. That's the reality of a sacrilegious communion. 
Before we set this topic aside, there's something else we ought to consider, and that's the sin of scandal. Of course, everyone here knows what our Lord said about scandal. He that shall scandalize one of these little ones that believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hung around his neck, that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of scandals. For it must needs be that scandals come, but nevertheless, woe to that man by whom the scandal cometh. Close quote, God the Son. So what is scandal? St. Thomas defines it, quote, Scandal is something less rightly said or done, which gives occasion to the spiritual ruin of one's neighbor. Close quote. St. Alphonsus explains this, quote, Scandal, then, is a word or an act by which you are to your neighbor the cause or the occasion of losing his soul. Scandal, if it be in a matter of great moment, is always a mortal sin. Close quote. Now, there are two aspects to scandal. We're just going to go through it briefly. There's scandal given and scandal taken. Scandal given is the act or the word which may cause another one's spiritual ruin. For example, a woman dressed in a provocative or indecent manner is guilty of scandal given, not only because of the bad example that she's given to other women, but also because this dress is an occasion of sin for the men. In this case, not only would she be guilty of dressing in a scandalous manner, she would also be guilty of every single sin she provoked by her dress since she decided to offer that forbidden fruit. That's a scandal given. Scandal taken is the sin of the person who, which was caused by the scandal given. It's the sin of the person who was scandalized. To take the same example, a man who sees this woman certainly does not have to gaze upon that forbidden fruit, but every one of the men who do lust after her is certainly guilty in his own right, and that's scandal taken. So what does this have to do with the topic of sacrilegious communion? Imagine a situation where a spouse or a child doesn't receive communion. Instead of committing that situation to prayer, there are certain spouses or parents who can't or won't let that pass. After Mass, here comes interrogation. Why didn't you go to communion? What's going on? Etc., etc. So a kid doesn't go to communion, and as a result, he gets interrogated by a parent after Mass. If he then starts making sacrilegious communions as a result of fear or pressure he feels from that parent, from that interrogation, that parent is guilty of scandalizing the child. The same would be true of a spouse that put that kind of moral pressure on the partner. Scandal, again, is a word or an act by which you are to your neighbor the cause or the occasion of his losing his soul. The bottom line here is don't be asking people why they didn't go to communion. It's none of our business. Remember that he who makes a sacrilegious communion receives Satan and Jesus Christ into his heart. Satan that he may rule and Jesus Christ that he may offer him as a sacrifice to Satan. And remember that if you provoked that sacrilegious communion by pressure and interrogation, it's also your sin. On the topic of scandal, it's also important to keep in mind, as we said, that just because someone gives scandal, just because someone offers you an occasion of sin, doesn't mean you have to take it. 
About eight years ago, I was invited to be the confessor and then sit a Sunday Mass at a Eucharistic conference out west. I would be others giving the conferences and so forth, and I would just hear all the confessions. So I got there on a Friday afternoon. It was just starting at 3. That's when I arrived. Got in the confessional at 3.30, uh, and I heard confessions solid till 1.30 in the morning. I, heard, I got up early, did my holy hour, said, said my Mass, and got the confessional at 7.30 the next morning. Except for two or three ten-minute breaks during that day, I heard confessions solid from 7.30 in the morning till 1.20 that night. It's wiped out. The whole experience was unbelievable. I hear a lot of confessions. It was unbelievable. There was real grace working there. I didn't meet the priest who was doing most of the preaching. I sure don't know what he said. I was busy doing other things. But I do know that whatever he said, there's real grace working there. Over the years, I've had an opportunity to hear three or four of his conferences. There's probably a lot of you that have heard more because that priest was Father Karapi. Many of you probably know that last Sunday, he resigned from public ministry. When a priest, any priest, especially a famous straight-talking orthodox priest, which is an unfortunately rare commodity these days, when any priest makes an announcement like that, it's going to cause scandal. There's no way around that. And judging from the crazy responses all over the place, there are a lot of people that have been scandalized, a lot of people that have taken scandal. Some of the responses, I have to say, are downright vicious. What sort of response should we have to something like this? First off, no matter how it strikes us, we should not allow it to cause us to sin. I don't understand it. I don't approve of it. But then again, I don't have all the gory details. At this point in the history of the church, everyone here should be pretty battle-hardened when it comes to priest behavior, and that's certainly not excusing it in any way. When it comes to clerics in the church over the past few decades, there's been a lot of scandal given, not just from priests, but from bishops and even from Rome. You don't need me to go down the list. So what sort of response should we have? First off, don't be scandalized. Second off, we should pray. Pray for Father Karapi. Isn't that what each one of us will want to have happen were we in his position? Be good to take the message of Our Lady of Akita to heart. The local bishop, after traveling to Rome to consult with Cardinal Ratzinger, proved the events and message of Akita as reliable and worthy of belief. In her third message, on October 13, 1973, Our Lady said, in part, quote, Each day, recite the prayers of the Rosary. With the Rosary, pray for the Pope, the bishops, and the priests. The work of the devil will infiltrate even into the church in such a way that one will see cardinals opposing cardinals and bishops against other bishops. The priests who venerate me will be scorned and opposed by their confreres. The churches and altars will be vandalized. The church will be full of those who accept compromises and the demon will press many priests and consecrated souls to leave the service of the Lord. 
The demon will rage especially against souls consecrated to God. The thought of the loss of so many souls is the cause of my sadness. Close quote, Our Lady of Akita. Each day, recite the prayers of the rosary. With the rosary, pray for the Pope, the bishops, and the priests. Okay. One more scandalous incident. This one took place in 1955 in Indonesia on Borneo Island, an island which is just off the northeast coast of Borneo. It involves a Muslim named Salah who hated Christianity from his childhood. The story was recorded less than 10 years ago by a missionary priest of the Sacred Heart, Father Pius Retob, MSC, who heard it directly from Salah himself. Uh, for the sake of time, we'll rely on his report, but as usual, there'll be a cutting, pasting, and editing to some degree. Salah hated Christianity, so he'd regularly throw rocks at the nearby Catholic church while the congregation was inside praying. Then he saw a Catholic girl passing by his house on her way to Mass, and he decided to greet and hopefully befriend her. One day, as this beautiful girl was returning from the church and passing by his house, Salah greeted her kindly. She stopped and looked at him, so he approached and introduced himself. She told him, My name is Martha Suntrish from Doplang, Sepu, Central Java. I am an orphan, and I work as a maid. Then Salah asked Martha where she was going and why she always passed in front of his house. Martha replied, I have come from the church, and I am going home. I always attend the religious service at the church, and I pass this way. Sal asked her about her religion. Martha answered, I am a Catholic. Then Martha said goodbye and continued on her way. Sal's interest in Martha grew. Every day he greeted Martha as she passed in front of his house. After several meetings and becoming more acquainted, he opened his art to her, about his desire to make her his wife. She asked for several days to think about her answer. Each day, Sal pressed Martha to give confirmation as soon as possible. After several days, Martha accepted Sal's proposal. During their courtship, they discussed religion. Sal pressured Martha to follow and become a Muslim. On the other side, Martha said she would only marry Sal if he became a Catholic. Neither one was willing to give up. Meanwhile, Solomon accompanied Martha everywhere, including to bring her to church to attend Holy Mass. After several visits, Solomon asked her about something that was white and looked like paper, which was received and eaten by Martha in the church. Martha answered, That is the body of my Lord. That is called the Holy Host, something that is most holy and revered by Catholics. Solomon was surprised to hear that answer and sought ways to acquire the Holy Host. On Sunday, October 23, 1955, Martha attended Mass, accompanied by Sala. After arriving at the church, Sala waited, watching from outside. Before Martha went to church, Sala had asked Martha to bring a Holy Host home and then give it to him. If Martha did not fulfill this request, then their relationship would be ended. Parenthetical remark, in regards to stealing a host, there is an automatic excommunication for the deliberate desecration of the Blessed Sacrament, throwing away the host or precious blood, or the stealing of the Blessed Sacrament to be used in a sacrilegious manner. And although there are certain factors which, if present, may lessen this penalty, this automatic excommunication is reserved to the Holy See, 
which remains that only the Holy See can remove it. So you come to confession to us, we can't do anything. You go to confession to the bishop, he can't remove it. It's the Holy See that removes it. I'm not going to go through the details of how that goes, but uh, this is not something, obviously, that someone wants to have anything to do with. Okay, not just because of excommunication. I mean, you're talking about our Lord. Back to the story. Martha went to the church and attended Mass as usual. During communion, she went forward with other faithful people to receive, but when she received the Holy Host from the priest, she did not immediately swallow it. Walking back to her pew, she took the Holy Host out of her mouth, and then she wrapped the Host and brought it home. Upon arriving home, Martha handed the Host to Sala. Sala put the Host in his pocket, and they went to a party celebrating the wedding anniversary of a friend. There were some people cooking in the kitchen. Others were playing cards and so on. And Sala thought that this was the right moment to show everybody that what Martha believed was a lie. Sala asked for a knife from Martha, and he cut the Holy Host in front of everyone, especially his friends who were playing cards. But the moment he cut the Host, a great amount of blood spurted out on everyone present. Many people's clothing, including Sala's, was stained by the blood. Sala was bewildered and afraid. He was paralyzed with fear and did not move from his seat. The same thing happened with his friends and all those present. The news spread. Many people gathered around. Some people who hadn't seen what Sala had done presumed that a murder had been committed and that the killer was Sala, so they reported this to authorities. Four policemen soon arrived, a Catholic, a Protestant, and two Muslims. They were astounded and in awe to see so much blood. Without questioning and find out what had happened, the policemen put Saul's hands in shackles. Saul was confused and afraid. Meanwhile, blood still poured out from the Holy Host. The policemen were also afraid and were confused about it. The Protestant policemen had the initiative to call the local priest. When the priest arrived, he asked what had happened, but no one answered. He repeated the question, but they were still silent. When the priest looked at the Holy Host, which was issuing blood, he immediately knelt down and prayed with raised hands. After the priest finished, the Holy Host stopped issuing blood. With fear and trembling, Sally approached the priest and begged mercy and forgiveness for what he did. Once more, the priest raised his hands and prayed and blessed Sally. Saul remained filled with fear and confusion. That night, he could not sleep soundly. A conviction to become a Catholic slowly grew stronger in his heart. The next day, early in the morning, Saul went to the church. His intention was to meet with the priest and declare his heart's desire to become a Catholic and become catechized. When he arrived at the church, nobody except the priest was present. Saul expressed his heart's desire to the priest. The priest listened kindly and suggested that Saul should return to his home to meditate about the bleeding host, and in the meantime, the priest would find a catechist to teach Sal. Sal then went to find Martha and told her of her desire to become a Catholic and to study the faith. A few days later, they were married in a civil ceremony at Banyo Island. Now, as we know, that's not a marriage, as if Martha were not in enough trouble for stealing the host. Because of the incident of the desecration of the host, many people from other religions, especially from Islam, declared their desire to become Catholics, which provoked many parties to threaten to kill Salah. It is the religion of peace, after all. 
A few days later, the local authorities, who were Muslims, heard the news about the bleeding host. They summoned Saul and others who were present during the event and forbade them under the pain of death to speak about the incident to anyone, especially to Muslims. Saul was not at peace and was insecure in living in Banya because of the persecution from the local authorities and the community for mostly Muslims. Saul and Martha decided to move to Tarakan, a town on a nearby island. Saul was determined to learn Catholicism and be baptized as soon as possible, so he began studying the Catholic faith with a priest from the Netherlands who belonged to the missionaries of the Holy Family. But the people from Banya followed Sela. His life was once again threatened. They then moved to Tangen Cellar, a town in Borneo. However, even there, the persecution continued for a year. Finally, they moved even farther south to Barro and stayed there. On the 26th of October, 1966, Sal was baptized with the name Antonius Ioannis Sella, and on the same day received the sacrament of marriage with Martha. Anton Sella, his new nickname, strove to become a good Catholic by assiduous prayer and liturgical worship, was helpful towards others who also sought to become Catholics and generously helped needy and poor people. Although the couple were childless, their lives were good examples for other people, and as a result, many were attracted to the Catholic faith. They kept the Bleeding Host event secret for years until the 1970s and 80s when people in several places started talking about this amazing incident until the story had spread throughout the area. On this Corpus Christi, it's good to remind ourselves that our Lord is really there. He's really there body, blood, soul, and divinity in the most blessed sacrament of the altar. Our Lord is there. He's really there. 